Section 32 of Elia and the Last Essays of Elia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arden. Elia and the Last Essays of Elia by Charles Lamb. Stage Illusion. A play is said to be well or ill acted in proportion to the scenical illusion produced. Whether such illusion can in any case be perfect is not the question. The nearest approach to it we are told, is when the actor appears wholly unconscious of the presence of spectators. In tragedy, in all which is to affect the feelings, this undivided attention to his stage business seems indispensable. Yet it is, in fact, dispensed with every day by our cleverest tragedians, and while these references to an audience, in the shape of rant or sentiment, are not too frequent or palpable, a sufficient quantity of illusion for the purposes of dramatic interest may be said to be produced in spite of them. But tragedy apart, it may be inquired whether in certain characters in comedy, especially those which are a little extravagant, or which involve some notion repugnant to the moral sense, it is not a proof of the high skill in the comedian when, without absolutely appealing to an audience, he keeps up a tacit understanding with them and makes them, unconsciously to themselves, a party in the scene. The utmost nicety is required in the mode of doing this, but we speak only of the great artists in the profession. The most mortifying infirmity in human nature, to feel in ourselves, or to contemplate in another, is perhaps cowardice. To see a coward done to the life upon a stage would produce anything but mirth. Yet we most of us remember Jack Bannister's cowards. Could anything be more agreeable, more pleasant? We loved the rogues. How was this affected but by the exquisite art of the actor in a perpetual sub-insinuation to us, the spectators, even in the extremity of the shaking fit, that he was not half such a coward as we took him for? We saw all the common symptoms of the malady upon him, the quivering lip, the cowering knees, the teeth chattering, and could have sworn that man was frightened. But we forgot all the while, or kept it almost a secret to ourselves, that he never once lost his self-possession, that he let out by a thousand droll looks and gestures, men at us, and not at all supposed to be visible to his fellows in the scene, that his confidence in his own resources had never once deserted him. Was this a genuine picture of a coward, or not rather a likeness? which the clever artist contrived to palm upon us instead of an original, while we secretly connived at the delusion for the purpose of greater pleasure than a more genuine counterfeiting of the imbecility, helplessness, and utter self-desertion which we know to be concomitants of cowardice in real life could have given us. Why are misers so hateful in the world and so endurable on the stage, but because the skillful actor, by a sort of sub-reference, rather than direct appeal to us, disarms the character of a great deal of its odiousness, by seeming to engage our compassion for the insecure tenor by which he holds his money-bags and parchments, by the subtle vent half of the hatefulness of the character, the self-closeness, with which in real life it coils itself up from the sympathies of men, evaporates, the miser becomes sympathetic, i.e. is no genuine miser. Here again a diverting likeness is substituted for a very disagreeable reality. Spleen, irritability, the pitiable infirmities of old men, which produce only pain to behold in the realities, counterfeited upon a stage, divert not altogether for the comic appendages to them, but in part from an inner conviction that they are being acted before us, that a likeness only is going on, and not the thing itself. They please by being done under the life, or beside it, not to the life. When Gaddy acts an old man, is he angry indeed, or only a pleasant counterfeit, just enough of a likeness to recognize, without pressing upon us the uneasy sense of reality? Comedians, paradoxical as it may seem, may be too natural. It was the case with a late actor. Nothing could be more earnest of true than the matter of Mr. Emery, this told excellently in his tyke, 
than characters of a tragic cast, but when he carried the same rigid exclusiveness of attention to the stage business and willful blindness and oblivion of everything before the curtain into his comedy, it produced a harsh and dissonant effect. He was out of keeping with the rest of the personae dramatis. There was as little link between him and them as betwixt himself and the audience. He was a third estate, dry, repulsive, and unsocial to all. Individually considered, his execution was masterly. But comedy is not this unbending thing, for this reason that the same degree of credibility is not required of it as the serious scenes. The degrees of credibility demanded to the two things may be illustrated by the different sort of truth which we expect when a man tells us a mournful or a merry story. If we suspect the former falsehood in any one tittle, we reject it altogether. Our tears refuse to flow at a suspected imposition, but the teller of a mirthful tale has latitude allowed him. We are content with less than absolute truth. Tis the same with dramatic illusion. We confess we love in comedy to see an audience naturalized behind the scenes, taken in into the interest of the drama, welcomed as bystanders, however. There is something ungracious in a comic actor holding himself aloof from all participation or concern with those who are come to be diverted by him. Macbeth must see the dagger, and no ear but his own be told of it. But an old fool in farce may think he sees something, and by conscious words and looks express it, as plainly as he can speak, to pit, box, and gallery. When an impertinent in tragedy, an Osric, for instance, breaks in upon the serious passions of the scene, we approve of the contempt with which he is treated. But when the pleasant impertinent of comedy, in a piece purely meant to give delight, and raise mirth out of whimsical perplexities, worries the studious man with taking up his leisure or making his house his home, the same sort of contempt expressed, however natural, would destroy the balance of delight in the spectators. To make the intrusion comic, the actor who plays the annoyed man must a little desert nature. He must, in short, be thinking of the audience, and express only so much dissatisfaction and peevishness as is consistent with the pleasure of comedy. In other words, his perplexity must seem half put on. If he repel the intruder with the sober set face of a man in earnest, and more especially if he deliver his expostulations in a tone which in the world must necessarily provoke a duel, his real-life manner will destroy the whimsical and purely dramatic existence of the other character, which, to render it comic, demands an antagonist comicality on the part of the character opposed to it, and convert what was meant for mirth, rather than belief, into a downright piece of impertinence indeed, which would raise no diversion in us, but rather stir pain, to see inflicted in earnest upon any unworthy person, a very judicious actor, in most of his parts, seems to have fallen into an air of this sort, in his playing with Mr. Wrench in the farce of free and easy. Many instances would be tedious. These may suffice to show that comic acting, at least, does not always demand from the performer that strict abstraction from all reference to an audience, which is exacted of it, but that in some cases a sort of compromise may take place, and all the purposes of dramatic delight be attained by a judicious understanding, not too openly announced between the ladies and gentlemen on both sides of the curtain. End of section 32 Recording by Arden, 